The Old Testament reading is Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and this is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And now turn with me to Romans chapter 5. We are continuing our study of the book of Romans. This morning we are at chapter 5, verses 12 through 21. Chapter 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one, man, one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You will remember from your student days, or if you are uh, presently a student, you will uh, know from your uh, present experience that uh, one of a teacher's uh, favorite assignments is uh, to compare and contrast. Uh, for example, to compare and contrast two literary 
characters or two historical figures or two ideas or concepts. In a manner of speaking, it seems that the Apostle Paul was given a divine assignment to uh, compare and contrast. In this case, to compare and contrast uh, the persons and the work of the two most significant, most important men who have ever lived. Uh, The first is Adam. Adam, of course, is the first man that God created. He created him from the dust of the ground, and he appointed Adam to be uh, the representative head of the entire human race that would come from him. And the second man is Jesus. He is uh, the God-man, not just man, but the incarnation of the Son of God. And he is the one whom God sent into the world to become the Savior and the head of all of God's redeemed people. And Paul's completion of that divine assignment is what we have here in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21. And we can summarize what Paul tells us in these verses about Adam and Jesus in this way. On the one hand, Adam sinned against God and he brought condemnation and death to the entire human race. But on the other hand, Jesus obeyed God, his father, and his obedience brought justification and life uh, to the people of God. And so there are four points of comparison that we will consider as we go through these verses. Uh, First, Adam and Christ, uh, then sin and disobedience, and then condemnation and justification, and finally death and life. And because of the structure of this passage, we won't be going through uh, this passage verse by verse, unpacking it. Uh, Rather, because the way of this, this passage is laid out for us, we'll We'll see how these points of comparison run like threads uh, throughout this uh, passage. But before we dive into it, uh, it's important for us uh, to understand, to know that uh, though this is very uh, dense, very uh, rich uh, theological uh, uh, truth that we have here in this passage, that the Apostle Paul, when he wrote these words, and the Spirit who gave them these words, who gives us these words, Um, Paul was not engaging in some sort of um, esoteric, abstract, theological exercise. But in this passage, we are given a comprehensive understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Uh, What we've seen so far as we've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans is that the one truth so far in Romans that Paul has been uh, driving home uh, to us again and again is this truth that we are justified, we are made right with God on the basis, not of our works, but on the basis of Christ and His works. We are justified by faith. And this truth, of course, is extremely precious to us. Uh, We love this truth. We ought to love it. We ought to proclaim it. And this lies at the very heart of what it means to be a salvation, that we are justified by faith alone. But in these verses now, Paul gives us an even more basic or more radical or fundamental uh, truth uh, about what it means to be a Christian. And that is this, that as believers in Christ, we are united to Jesus. We belong to Christ. Uh, To use the language that is given us in the New Testament, we are in Christ. 
And for you as a Christian, knowing this truth of your union with Christ and all that that implies for you, uh, this makes all the difference in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And because it makes all the difference in your understanding of what it means to be a Christian, ultimately, God willing, it makes all the difference in what it means to live the Christian life. And so our goal then, as we consider these verses, is not just to intellectually grasp uh, the truth that uh, is being given to us in these verses. But our goal is to see that these truths bear fruit in our hearts and our lives, uh, the fruit of gratitude and joy, uh, the fruit of a greater love for, a greater devotion uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. So I want us to, to keep that in mind as we uh, go along now and take a, a closer look at what Paul says here. And the first point of comparison that Paul makes is between these two men, Adam and Jesus. Uh, In the first part of verse 12, Paul says this. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The sinful nature that is common to all of us, uh, that is common to everybody in the entire world throughout all history, the sin that is true for every human being, it came into the world, Paul says, through one man, through one man. And so because of the sin of one man, all people are sinners. And what that means is that Adam, when God created Adam, he did not just create him or just Adam didn't just happen to be the first human being that God made. But as the first man, God appointed Adam to be a covenant head, or we might say a federal head of the entire human race that would come from Adam and Eve. And so as the God appointed representative or covenant head of all of humanity to come from him, what Adam did in the garden would be counted by God as the action of the entire human race, as the action of every single human being that would, uh, that would uh, come from Adam. And so starting in verse 12, uh, but throughout this passage, uh, Paul refers to this, this truth that we are in union. By nature, we are in, are in union with Adam. There is a, a corporate solidarity or a corporate unity that all people, all of us, that we have with the first man, with Adam. And therefore, the sin and guilt of Adam is counted by God against us as our sin and guilt. But listen to how Paul, uh, he, he presupposes this truth that we are united to Adam by nature. He says in verse 12, again, sin came into the world through one man. Uh, Verse 15, many died through one man's trespass. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many, and what that means is all, but the many were made sinners. Because Adam was appointed by God to be our federal head, what Adam did before God is counted as what we have done before God. His sin is our sin. And so when we read the story of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and and when I mean story, when I say story, what I mean is the historical account, the historical narrative. But when we read the story in Genesis, uh, we read from Genesis 3 earlier, uh, this is not just Adam's story. We're not just reading about what Adam did 
but we're reading our story. This is what we did. Adam's story is your story. It's my story. And so by nature and by birth, you and I are just as sinful and guilty before God as Adam was the moment that he sinned against God. By nature, we belong to Adam. We are united to Adam. We are in Adam. But thanks be to God, and this is the burden that the apostle has uh, in these verses. Thanks be to God that there is another covenant head. There is another Adam. And we belong to him as believers in Jesus Christ. And this, of course, is Christ. Um, At the end of 14, uh, Paul makes this uh, link between Adam and Jesus explicit. He says that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. And what that means is that just as God appointed Adam to be the head of all humanity that, that, that would come from him, so Jesus was appointed by God to be the federal head, the covenant head of a redeemed humanity. And so Jesus is the second Adam. Uh, sometimes he's referred to as the second Adam, or the Bible uh, refers to him in 1 Corinthians as the last Adam. Uh, when I was in the Presbytery of the Southwest, we had uh, two ministers, uh, both with the name of Adam. And, and someone joked that in order to avoid confusion, we should refer to the longer serving minister as the first Adam and uh, the junior minister as the second Adam. So that's the sort of nerdy pastor humor that uh, you'll, you'll hear at Presbytery. But going back to the, to the real first and second Adam, just as Adam represented and acted on behalf of all humanity in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus in his, his life, his death, his resurrection, he represented, he acted on behalf of all of God's people. And throughout this passage, just as uh, Paul uh, speaks about or or refers to this union between humanity and Adam. So he also refers to uh, the unity, the union that the people of God have with Christ. Or he doesn't speak of it explicitly so much as he presupposes it. He assumes it. For example, in verse 15, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So the The obedience of the one man, the grace that comes through the one man, Jesus, abounds to many. Verse 18. So one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. That is, all who belong to God by faith in Christ. Verse 19. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so... At the deepest, the most fundamental level, there are only two kinds of people in the world. Every single human being can be, uh, falls into the category of one kind of person or another kind of person. There are only two kinds. There are those who are in Adam by nature, and there are those who are in Christ by grace and by faith. Those are the only two kinds of people that exist. Now, we live in a world in which there, was a, there is a bewildering kaleidoscope of all kinds of religions and philosophies and worldviews. But at heart, every single human being falls into one of these two categories. Either he or she is in Adam or he or she is in Christ. And what this means for you as a Christian is that your Christianity is something that is far more profound, far more... Um, fundamental than simply your religious affiliation. Uh, Your Christianity is more fundamental, more radical 
than uh, trying to live a Christ-like life, which, of course, is important. It's necessary to try to live a Christ-like life, but that is not, at the deepest level, what it means to be a Christian. Uh, Your Christianity is most essentially, most fundamentally, about this, your status, your position, your standing before God. You are united to Christ. As a believer in Christ, you are united to Christ. You belong to Christ. You are in Christ. He is your covenant head, not Adam. And for you as, the Christ, as a Christian, uh, this truth, this truth that what makes you a Christian, what defines you most fundamentally is that you are united to Jesus. This truth is the biblical answer uh, to the question that our world is obsessed with, and I would say the question that our world today is tormented by, and that question is, what is my true identity? What makes me, me? Who am I? And the unbelieving world and all of its spiritual blindness says this. It says, your most essential identity, what makes you, you, who you are, consists of Perhaps your occupation, what you do. You are defined by what you do. Or perhaps you are defined by what you purchase, the brands that you buy, uh, the car that you drive, the clothes that you wear. Or the world may tell us it is your race. Your race is the most fundamental definition of who you are. Or the world may tell us it is your politics or your values or your sexual desires and, and, um, and conduct or your self-chosen gender. But according to Scripture, a person's most essential identity, the one that determines the eternal destiny of every single human being, is this. This is what is most fundamentally true about every person. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Are you a sinner in Adam bound for eternal destruction? Or are you a forgiven sinner in Christ bound for eternal life and glory? And the question for you and me is a question of faith. It's a question of faith. Have you come to Jesus by faith? Are you entrusting in Jesus, the Son of God, as your Savior to deliver you from your sin and guilt? If you do not, if you have not come to Christ by faith, if you are not resting in him by faith, then you are still in Adam. You are still an Adam, and you, therefore, are still condemned. The wrath of God still lies upon you. But if you do belong to Christ by faith, if he is your Lord, if he is your Savior, because you have entrusted yourself to him, then you are in Jesus. And that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference. You are in Jesus. Therefore, you have the hope of salvation, the gift of eternal life. And this gift, this promise of eternal life, it is entirely because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done for you as your new covenant head. And that brings us to the second point of comparison, and that is sin and obedience. Sin and obedience. On the one hand, Adam's sin. On the other, Christ's obedience. When children in colonial times were learning their alphabet, uh, the rhyme that they would learn uh, that goes with the letter A, 
And this was in the, the New England primer that was used um, you know, hundreds of years ago. But the, the rhyme that they learned was, In Adam's fall, we send all. In Adam's fall, we send all. And that is exactly what this passage is teaching us here. Again, and this is a little redundant, but again, when Adam sinned, God counted his sin, his guilt against all people, every human being. It is as though you and I were ourselves in that garden, as though we heard with our ears, do not eat of this fruit. And as though we ourselves chose, instead of obedience, we chose to disobey. We took of that fruit and we ate. We are just as guilty, just as sinful before God as if we ourselves had eaten that fruit and sinned against God. Verse 19 says, for, the, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Again, the one man's disobedience. This is Adam. This is his sin. The many, and, and here the many means all. All were made sinners. And so we all became guilty of sin. We are sinful by nature. Uh, this is the truth, and uh, this is, frankly, a hard truth. It's not something that we naturally embrace, but it is what is true about us. And, and, and we should give thanks to God that he, he tells us the truth in his word. He does not hold back from us what we need to know. But this truth is that uh, we are sinners by nature. This is what we call in theology original sin. Our shorter catechism defines original sin in this way. It consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, uh, the want or the, or the lack of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature. And so what this means is that you and I, before uh, we were born, uh, before we do anything good or bad, already, at our very conception, we are already guilty. We are guilty of Adam's sin. We are already lacking in righteousness. We are already corrupt in our whole nature. This is who we are. And the Catechism goes on to say that the actual sins that we, that we commit, the personal sins that, that we commit in this life, that these proceed from this original sin. And so what this means is that we sin because we are sinners. You know, our sin does not make us sinners. It's not as though we become sinners because we sin, but because we are sinners, we sin. And so our sin is the fruit of a, of a corrupt nature, of a sinful nature. And that is what we are in Adam. By the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. And this sin and corruption that is in us, that we are born with, that is spiritually really defines who we are in Adam, that this is so ingrained in us. It is so much a part of us that when we hear the righteous requirements of God, when we hear the law of God, what do we do? We do the very opposite of what God commands. It's instinctive. It's natural. It's reflexive. Our natural response is to disobey the law of God when we hear it. It's like when you have a, a toddler and you tell him, don't touch that. And as soon as he hears the word, words, he reaches out his hand and he starts to touch it. That's the way that we respond to God's law, God's commandments. And that's what Paul has in mind in verse 20. 
when he says uh, the law came in to increase the trespass. When God reveals to us his commandments, when we explicitly, uh, when God explicitly uh, reveals to us in his word what he requires of us. Uh, For example, the Ten Commandments. uh, Our sin increases. Why? Because we naturally break those commandments. We do the very opposite of what God requires. However, even when we are not exposed, if uh, imagine that we lived somewhere in some place where we had no uh, exposure to the scriptures, uh, there was no missionary, we had never heard of the Ten Commandments, God's law. But even then, we are still sinners. Even then, we are guilty of sin. And that's the point that Paul makes in verses 13 and 14. These are difficult verses, uh, verses 13 and 14. Uh, But bear with me here. Uh, We'll try to understand these as best we can. What Paul is saying here is this, that all people were sinners even before the law of God was given uh, to Moses. Now, uh, there is some sense, there is some way in which uh, Without exposure to the law of God, uh, sin is not counted in the same way against the person who sins. Uh, That's what Paul says in verse 13. Sin is not counted where there is no law. Now, to be honest, I don't know exactly what that means. But whatever it means, it doesn't mean that people who live before the law of Moses, people who have no exposure to the law of God, it doesn't mean that they aren't sinners and that they don't sin. And the proof of that is that Those who lived before the law of Moses, before God explicitly, expressly gave his law, they died. They suffered death. Why did they suffer death? Because they were sinners, because they sinned against God. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. And so even those who did not sin against an express, explicit, verbal command of God, like the one that God gave to Adam, do not eat of this fruit of this tree, Even those who did not sin in that way, nevertheless, they died because of their sin. They were still guilty of sin. And so that's what Paul is saying in those verses. But what's what's super clear from this passage, and one of the things that we need to keep in mind when we come across a difficult passage or difficult verses, is that what God reveals to us that we must know for our salvation, for our sanctification, he makes it clear. And what's clear in this passage is this, that we are in a dreadful state of sin and guilt and spiritual corruption from the day of our birth. In Adam's sin, or in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Uh, We all fell. We fell all. But praise God for the second Adam. Verse 19, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The entire life of Jesus, the entire ministry of Jesus, all that he did in his incarnation and coming into the world can be summed up in one word, that is obedience, obedience. Unlike Adam, Jesus was obedient to his father, to God in all that he did. Compare Adam with Jesus when they were tempted. Adam was tempted by the devil in in a garden paradise. He had every reason to obey God's word. And yet he sinned. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the hostile wilderness. 
Humanly speaking, he had every reason not to obey God's word, but he obeyed. And Jesus obeyed the will of his father, even to the point of death on a cross, where out of obedience to his father's will, he offered himself a sacrifice to take away the sin, our sin, forever. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, as one who is united to Christ by faith, the perfect obedience of Jesus is counted as your very own. Both the life that he lived, the perfect obedience of Jesus from the time he was born to the time he died, both his uh, obeying all of God's commandments and both his obedience to the Father's will and offering himself a sacrifice, his obedience is counted as your very own, as though you yourself lived a life of perfect obedience, as though you yourself suffered the penalty of your sin. It is counted as yours by God, this obedience of Christ. And this truth that we are made righteous, that we are justified by the obedience of Jesus, this is a wonderful comfort for you and me because what it means is, is that your salvation, your eternal, uh, the, the, the hope that you have for eternal life, your redemption does not depend upon, it is not grounded in, your obedience, your works, your performance, but it is grounded in, it depends upon the perfect obedience of Jesus. And that's a freeing truth because it means that I don't have to try hard to obey God's commandments uh, to, to do well as a Christian in order that I might have a right standing with him, in order that I might be saved. It means that Jesus has done it all for you already. He has done it all. And so when God looks upon you, he does not look upon you in your sin and in your imperfect obedience, but he looks upon you as you are clothed with the perfect righteousness of his own son, Jesus. The third point of comparison is condemnation and justification. Because God is a holy and just God, a sin leads to condemnation. Uh, God cannot overlook sin. He cannot ignore sin forever. There is, there is judgment. And because when Adam sinned, we all sinned, therefore we all stand condemned before a holy and just God. But Paul speaks to this in verse 16. He says, For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Uh, that means condemnation for all of us. That was, that was the judgment of God against that sin of Adam, which is our sin, condemnation. But Paul goes on to say in verse 16, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. In this comparison and contrast that Paul is giving us here, uh, there is a sense in which um, what Christ has done for us is far, far greater uh, than what Adam did. Uh, one solitary sin on Adam's part. When you consider it, it's, it's, it's remarkable, isn't it? You know, one sin on Adam's part. You know, he didn't, he didn't murder anybody. Uh, you know, he didn't commit some, some heinous sin. Um, he disobeyed God's commandment to take of the fruit and eat of it. But that one sin plunged the entire human race for millennia to come in a state of sin and misery. And that's the world we live in. But after many trespasses, after the countless trespasses and sins that we are all guilty of, 
we would think that God's response to many trespasses, if he judged the entire human race for one trespass, we would think that his response to our many, many trespasses would be that much more condemnation, that much more severe judgment. But it says this, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. God's gracious work of redemption is far, far more wonderful, greater than his necessary work of judgment. Now, we've seen in, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans that he has been driving this truth home to us again and again, this truth about our justification, that as those who believe in Christ, as those who belong to Christ, we are, we are made right with God, we are forgiven, we are justified, not by what we do, but by faith in Christ. And this, again, this is the glorious truth that we need to embrace. We need to proclaim it with all our hearts. But now in this passage, Jesus, or Paul speaks of our justification in light of, with, with this other truth in the background or, or undergirding it, and this other truth in the context of which, or in the light of which Paul speaks of justification, is this more basic fundamental truth that we are united to Christ, that we are in Christ and because we are united to Christ, because we are in Christ, we can know Christ. We can know Him. We can have communion with Him. There is nothing greater, there is no greater blessing than to know God as He comes to us in the person of Jesus. Uh, you could put it this way. Our greatest blessing in our union with Christ is that we now have communion with Christ. And after all, what would our justification be if we did not come to know Jesus, the one who justifies us as a result. To know Jesus, as, to know, to know Jesus is to know the Son of God, uh, the inexhaustible source of all joy, all life, all peace, all blessing, uh, now and forevermore. And so, in the context here in which Jesus, in which Paul speaks of justification, our union with Christ, we could, we could say this, that the good news of the gospel is not only that we are justified, that our sins are forgiven, but the good news of the gospel is that we get Christ himself, that he is ours forever. The fourth and final point, point of comparison is this, death and life. Uh, when the Lord uh, commanded Adam not to eat of that tree, uh, that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, he warned him in Genesis 2.17, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And of course, this is exactly what happened. At the moment that Adam uh, disobeyed God, he took of that fruit and ate, he died spiritually. He was, he was cut off from that point on from the, from the gracious presence of God. And, of course, Adam died physically uh, many years later. And this was God's judgment against Adam for his sin. And, of course, this judgment of death, uh, both spiritual death, both physical death, this is God's judgment upon the whole human race because of the sin of Adam, because of our solidarity with Adam. Uh, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Death came into the world because of sin. Death is not something that God made part of his good creation. Death is not natural. When God surveyed all that he had made and called it very good, that did not include death. 
But death is an intrusion into what God has called very good. And so in itself, death is evil. It is an enemy. It is our last enemy. And in these verses, Paul speaks of the reign of death. Not just the presence of death, but the reign of death. Verse 14, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. Verse 21, sin reigned in death. And this this is what our world is. It is a world that is under the shadow of death. Death reigns over us. We live all our days under the prospect, the shadow of death. Death casts its pall over every earthly joy and pleasure. And as we were reminded last week from the book of Ecclesiastes, death renders all things seemingly vain and futile and meaningless. Again, praise be to God. Although in Adam we are doomed uh, to this judgment, to die an eternal death, in Christ we receive the gift of eternal life. Verse 17. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Again, I don't know exactly what it means when Paul says that we will reign in life, but at the very least it means this. That when God... At the coming again of Jesus, when he raises our bodies from the grave, when we are raised up incorruptible, immortal forever in bodies that are glorified, even as Jesus' body is glorified, at that point we will be victorious. We will be triumphant over sin and death and hell forever. That is the promise of our reigning in life, at least part of it. And as we come to the end of this passage, as Paul compares and contrasts Adam and Christ, he leaves us with this truth. That the grace of God far surpasses the sin of man. Uh, Our sin is great. I think we don't grasp just how great, not in a good sense, but in a big sense, just how great our sin is. But God's grace is greater still. Verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Again, it's not what we expect. Where sin increased, judgment abounded all the more. No, where sin increased, grace, grace abounded all the more. As one Puritan writer put it, there is more grace in Jesus than there is sin in me. In Adam, you are a guilty sinner, worthy of condemnation and death, but in Christ. By faith in Christ, you are righteous, you are justified, you have life, and you have the fullness of the infinite riches of God's grace and love poured out upon you for the sake of Jesus. Let's pray.